Welcome to the Redeemer Covenant Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. At Redeemer, we are dedicated to following Jesus and connecting people to God's transforming love. If you want to stay connected to all that's happening here, visit rcctulsa.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Good morning. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. If you did not bring a Bible, don't have your Bible, there's a red one right underneath you or uh, in front of you, and that's page 1827 in the Red Bibles. We're in a series called Renovate because we all have areas in our lives uh, that could use some renewal or repair. And last week you heard Bill talk about New Year's resolutions. I was uh, in Chicago and missed that morning, and so I'd like to greet you this morning by saying, Happy New Year. Um, I also want to look at New Year's resolutions. Uh, since we're only two weeks into the year and some of you are still indecisive uh, about what it is you want to accomplish this year, let's look at the top five New Year's resolutions. Starting with five, be a servant. This is research here and answers uh, that many people have given. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. A lot of people want to put others first this year. Um, valuing others above myself is a goal. And then, of course, Eliminating all selfish ambition out of our lives. Not to do anything out of selfishness. And if you feel guilty, because like that doesn't represent what you want to do with your life, that's okay, because I made that up. That's not really what people want to do. Um, actually, here's kind of the set of New Year's resolutions that we're more used to. Floss regularly is one. And, and let's just be honest, like all of us are bad at that. And all of us, uh, we do lie to our dentist, don't we? Have you been flossing? Yes. Um, stop smoking, eat healthier, exercise, and lose weight. These are good goals and they're admirable ambitions and things that promote our health and our vitality and there's nothing wrong with trading French fries for broccoli. But let's be honest, our commitment to improvement is all too often self-absorbed. Can we just be honest with each other for a moment and confess that our commitment for improvement, things in which we want to do in our lives to get better as people holistically, are often self-centered and self-serving. I stand here today with confidence that 100% of us could use a significant improvement in a relationship or in all of our relationships in general. So before we focus on renovating our relationships this year, let me offer a definition for relationship that we'll work with in the context of this message. The way in which two or more concepts, objects, or people are connected. It's simple. It's the state of being connected to another. So here's the challenge. Many of us feel like it's hard enough and it takes enough commitment out of us and, and requires enough energy to cultivate healthy relationships with our spouse and maybe our children. And that in and of itself is a task and one that we're committed to and should be committed to. And we can't forget about our parents though. Our siblings, our grandparents, 
and our aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews and cousins and second cousins and friends and friends' friends and neighbors, teachers, and students? Are we cultivating healthy relationships with our employer and our employees, our supervisors, and our colleagues, and our in-laws? So let's go an uncomfortable step further. What about our relational responsibility with total strangers? I mean, think about it. Like, we struggle in and of itself to be loving and to cultivate healthy relationships with people that we do life with, that we live in close proximity to, that live in this bubble in which we operate on a daily basis. What is our relational responsibility to total strangers, to all people? Maybe you've heard of the six degrees of separation theory, which was developed by a Hungarian journalist in 1929, in which the idea is that all living people are six or fewer steps away from one another. All the people in the world. So if we created this chain of a friend of a friend statements in your life, a friend of a friend of a friend six times, we would get to every human in the world. That's the theory. It's fascinating. And it makes the world feel small. Um, This is not just fascinating, it's convicting. Because how do we often treat people we don't know? We give them our least and our worst. It's a timely conviction for me as I returned home late last night from Chicago and was thinking about the 90-minute drive from the Chicago suburbs to North Park Seminary um, that was my entire morning and evening, every day. According to the United States Department of Transportation, I've been in relationship with 542,000 other drivers every day. That's a lot of people. And I have a responsibility to those people, don't I? I'm connected to those people as we weave throughout the highways and streets of Chicago. I'd like to offer a few reflections about these people, though. Um, Some would speed up and then get in front of me. And then they would drive under the speed limit. That causes tension in a relationship. (laughs) Because I typically don't know a speed under the speed limit. And so when they get in front of me and go, it's, it's unacceptable. And it's very frustrating And other groups of cars would show this really cute sense of camaraderie as they would work together with one another in an effort to prevent me from cutting in. And they were never successful. In eight days of morning and evening commutes, they were never successful. And even as I cut them off, some would then honk at me to say, like, good morning. Um, And as they honked and said good morning, they were, like, waving. But it wasn't their whole hand. Um, And and so, if any of you have ever sat in traffic, my wife wife says that 
the, the moments that I show the least integrity is, is yeah, like driving around Dallas. Because why would you ever want to do that with 500,000 other people or Chicago? So these relationships include great tension and um, frustration and struggle. And as the week progressed, I found myself sitting in bumper-to-bumper traffic as the red brake lights lit up the sky, sitting still on a highway, I started looking over at people inside the window next to me. And it probably looked a little creepy. I'm not gonna lie. Especially when they look back at you and you lock eyes and you're like, I think we're supposed to say something to each other. But we can't because you're in your car and I'm in mine. But I looked at a lot of people and I, I caught myself trying to look at their eyes. And I started seeing people not as barriers in my way, but as people with stories. I was overwhelmed as I, you know, researched how many people I had relationship with in Chicago traffic. Over half a million stories every day, right there on the highway, next to one another. According to the six degrees of separation, I was maybe cutting off one of your family members in traffic. I mean, that's how small this world is. But these people, they brought compassion out of me. These were individuals who I know are facing sickness, who I know are losing loved ones. They're experiencing pain and loss of many kinds. They're facing many challenges. They live every day of their lives with fear. And they're disappointed about something. These are people just like me with stories that need to be heard. Ultimately, relationships are hard. They're hard if you're talking about 542,000 of them in city traffic. They're hard uh, if you live in constant conflict with your spouse. Relationships are hard if your child's not speaking to you or if you don't like your boss or someone that you work with each and every day. But inevitably, our relationships will experience fractures. Some fractures are avoidable and others simply aren't. So we submit ourselves to this text, this passage found in Philippians chapter two that I believe is a remedy for fractured relationships. I believe will renovate our relationships with others. This is the goal. Verse three, do nothing, do no thing, okay? out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves. One big idea that adequately describes the mood and the movement of our culture is this, aggressive self-expression. Every day you will experience the aggressive self-expression of another, maybe a relationship you have that's personal in your life or in the media. At a very young age, we discover this instinctive desire to win. That's what I experienced, that's what emerged in me in traffic. It's like if I can cut off 25 people and know that I'm ahead of the game but I only get home six minutes earlier, it still feels good. 
You know, full disclosure. We have this desire to win. We learn that success is measured by this world according to achievement and position and power. And the question becomes many times, can I get all I want out of this life? How fast can I get it? And who's in my way? Can I get everything I want out of this life? How quickly can I get it? Who's in my way? And this is not specific to our culture. It applies to humanity throughout history. Remember James and John? Mark chapter 10, they were bitten by the bug of winning. They asked Jesus for privilege. Jesus, can we ask you for a favor? Can you do something for us? We want to sit to your right and your left. Will you award us the highest places of honor? Oh, we want to live in your glory. And yeah, this is not necessarily a bad request because anyone would love a seat next to Jesus. That sounds like the best seat in the house. However, there were 10 other disciples who did not ask for such privilege. There were others in this scene, in this scenario, who never requested to Jesus, can we have this prestigious position? And the other disciples, the Bible tells us, lost their temper with James and John. And Jesus calms them down with a firm rebuke. Guys, listen, you got it all wrong. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Maybe Paul heard this story. Maybe Paul was aware of this encounter. And maybe his awareness of what took place that day inspired his demanding challenge of valuing others above yourself. Abraham Maslow one of the great thinkers of the 20th, 20th century. He brought a radical shift of perspective to psychology. And in his research, he studied people who he described as vitally alive, fully functioning, radiant, genuinely happy people. I want to ask today, are you vitally alive, fully functioning, radiant, genuinely happy? These are the people that he studied and the conclusion in his research, listen to this, of the, of the secret of this life of vitality, this life of radiance, of fully functioning, feeling alive, genuinely happy. This is what he says is the result, the conclusion. Without exception, I found that every person who was sincerely happy, radiantly alive, was living for the purpose and cause of others. This was his discovery. This happiness, this feeling alive, this flourishing, this radiance, he says, has to do with living for the purpose and cause of others. It appears to me that if we prioritize others above ourselves, it will result in a life of great internal blessing and peace. Verse 4, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Not trying to get ahead and cut people off, but letting others merge 
in front of you. Looking out for our own, our own interests comes naturally, doesn't it? I mean, no one has your back better than you do. And no one has my back better than I do. But the aim here is to discover ways. To discover ways that we can help and serve others, even if they don't know that they need help. Not just meeting a need because it's, we're made aware of it, but going out and looking. To discover something requires searching for it, actively looking for ways to help and to serve. I, I can't describe this any better than Caroline Westerhoff, who does uh, in her book a song for the baptized, this description of service and love. She says, we're not meant to simply bear the burdens and tragedies of others when they come our way. We're not simply just meant to bear those burdens, those tragedies, when they come our way. Rather, the disciple of Jesus, this is beautiful, is to deliberately choose what could be avoided. The disciple of Jesus is to deliberately choose the things in life that are hard and inconvenient and expensive for the sake of others that could be avoided. She goes on, without considering the cost, without worrying about who gets the credit, the Christian is to put himself or herself without reservation in the service of God and neighbor. It is engaging in the world's suffering because we can do nothing less It is being vulnerable, even to those who will turn against us. To deny self, she says, the grasping self-centered ego, is to liberate the true self, the wondrous one, created in the image of God and baptized into the likeness of Christ. So let me summarize it this way. The sacrificial lifestyle that we're called to live as followers of Christ, as image bearers of our creator, as the indwelling place of the Holy Spirit, as the active fruit of the Spirit in this world, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control is not reactive to the things that happen in this world, is not reactive to the things that come our way, but it's proactive. It's to go and look and discover ways in which we can sacrifice. It's to wake up in the morning and to whisper this prayer from your soul. Lord, you know what this day holds, and I don't. But I sure hope and humbly ask that as it would please you, you would help me see ways that I can serve. You would help me discover people that I can love. The Christian looks to sacrifice. And in verse five through eight, we're given the most wonderful example of this in our Savior. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Let me just stop and say, life would be very different if verse five said, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus unless they don't have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Like, Lord, I'll put on your mindset. I'll demonstrate the attitude of Christ 
if you'll just fix that person first. Like, have you seen their problems? You heard what they've said to me? Surely, God, you see all the hurt they've caused in my life. No. We put on the mindset of of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He's our supreme example of humility and love and selflessness. And we're to try our best. That's the commitment we're to make. Not perfection. We'll let one another down. Conflict is good for families. You build back stronger than you were before. But we try our best to emulate his, his example. Paul expresses this similar thought in Ephesians 4 too. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with some people in love. It doesn't say some people. I hope you heard that and it didn't feel right. It says all people in love. Because Christ could have come to earth in his position of power, lordship, the king of kings, sit on a throne. But instead he came as a servant and we are to do the same in our relationships. Let me take a moment and remind you of something. We're going to quickly lose hope if we expect conflict-free relationships in our lives. Because conflict, the origin is in our disagreements. And we have disagreements because we're diverse. Our diversity is a gift. So we can't avoid conflict in our relationships, but we can transform our conflict. We can trade our individual rights and our individual freedoms for what will build the other person up. Paul is saying, let all you do be done in love. Let all you do be done in love. Furthermore, it is our job to put love where there is no love. So if there's something in your life, a relationship, a workplace, a family member, a neighbor, if you're saying, there's no love between us, I'm here to tell you, Christian, It is your responsibility to put love where there's no love. If you'll put love where there's no love, love will be there, I promise. We just sang a moment earlier, you call me deeper to love. And let me remind you of another thing, and this is extremely old advice from a first century Jewish philosopher. Philo Alexander says this, be kind because everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Be kind, everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Our relationships are healthier when we remember that everyone we know and everyone we meet is like an iceberg. Everyone. See, we, we see just a glimpse of what's really happening in their life and in their world. And underneath the surface, there's pain and trauma and abuse and neglect and fear and anxiety and depression and worry and lack and sorrow, 
And we put on this mask, the top 10% above the water of this iceberg, and we live our lives like everything's okay. I'm just so happy. When really underneath the surface of everyone, there's a story. My Uber driver last night at 10.30 at night from the airport, he put on that top 10% on me and I got under the surface in 30 seconds. He's Ethiopian, he fought in the war in the 70s. He went three weeks one time without eating anything. He felt the pains of starvation and he shared some horrible things with me that he did in the war that still plague his spirit today because he's so crushed by the guilt. So we be kind to everyone because we don't know what exists under the surface. I'd like to read you Eugene Peterson's translation of this passage in Philippians 2. If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. The necessary action that I invite all of us to moving forward to live this kind of life is the word deselfify. It's not a word. Um, but it was something that stirred in my spirit this last week, and I thought, well, I shouldn't give a sermon point that's a word that's not a word, but it works for me, and I invite you to get on board. Let's deselfify ourselves. Let's, let's, let's kick the self to the curb. Let's, let's promote those around us, their needs, their desires, the lack that they feel in their everyday life. Let's deselfify. What if we were a deselfified church? People in the community. You guys seen those people at Redeemer? You seen those weird people from Redeemer? They're just so deselfified. They just don't think about themselves. They're just always out there doing things for other people. And they don't want people to talk about it. They don't, they don't want credit. You should hear what this family from Redeemer did for this other family that was going through a difficult time. So, deselfification, you know, whatever this is, you just make it your own. It's to be a servant. It's to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. It's, it's putting the other person first. It's valuing others above yourself. It's doing nothing out of selfish ambition. I want to I read you a short letter to close. And this letter is written by a man to his unborn child. And I invite you, if you'd like to, if it would help you to listen or to imagine what you'll hear in this letter, to close your eyes. But this is the best way I can show you Philippians 2 in a tangible example. He says, dear son or daughter, 
Your mother is very special. Few men know what it's like to receive appreciation for taking their wives out to dinner when it entails what it does for us. You see, child, I'm paralyzed. So your mother has to dress me, shave me, brush my teeth, comb my hair, wheel me out of the house and down the steps, open the garage, put me in the car, take the pedals off the chair, stand me up, sit me in the seat of the car, twist me around so I'm comfortable, fold the wheelchair, put it in the car, go around to the other side of the car, start it up, back it out, get out of the car, pull the garage door down, get back in the car and drive to the restaurant. And then it starts all over again. She gets out of the car and folds the wheelchair, opens the door, spins me around, stands me up, seats me in the wheelchair, pushes the pedals out, closes the wheelchair, locks the, cl- the car, wheels me into the restaurant, then takes the pedals off the wheelchair so I'll be, com- I'll be comfortable. We sit down to have dinner. She feeds me my entire meal. When it's over, she pays the bill, pushes the wheelchair out to the car again, and reverses the same routine. When it's all over, finished, with real warmth, she says to me, Honey, thank you for taking me out to dinner tonight. I never quite know what to say. Let's pray. Gracious God, you have made us for deep, satisfying relationships because you're a relational God. Your very nature and essence is relationship. So help me to bring joy into every context of my life through humble attitudes and actions of love. Forgive me, Lord, for being so many times self-centered, looking out only for myself. And I ask that you would enable me to think of others first and to show your love toward them. In the name of Jesus, our perfect example and humble King, we pray.